Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark County. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 322nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica, and happy birthday. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. This morning we're going to be reporting on a subject that's a favorite of yours. It's auditing issues that are associated with physician documentation. It's always fun to take a CDI break and think about E&M for change. Indeed it is. Reporting our lead story this morning is nationally recognized coding and documentation authority, Terry Fletcher. Terry's writing an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor four-part report on physician documentation. Also on the broadcast this morning is Rhonda Buckholz. Rhonda will be reporting on coding mental and behavioral health disorders. Always good to have Rhonda back on the broadcast. Thanks, Rhonda, for being with us this morning. And Glenn Krause is standing by to report on a holistic approach to CDI. Indeed, it is holistic. It's an approach that goes way beyond just capturing diagnosis. We have much to report this morning, but we begin this morning with Dr. Larry Field at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University. Inviting you to listen to an on-demand webcast on the ICD-10 coding of Parkinson's disease. It features Glorianne Bryant. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me again this week. Now, following up on you know what we went over last week, which is a little bit about burnout, I happened to have a discussion with a friend that happens to be a CEO of another hospital, and he was having morale issues at the hospital, and he asked me a question. And the question was, why did you get into medicine? And I went and explained that, you know, as a kid, I was off with my family. We had dogs. Uh, they were fighting. My arm went into the mouth of one of the dogs, and I ended up with a nice-sized puncture wound. But unfortunately, my father uh, didn't really trust doctors, um, and we were about 40 miles away from home. And he would not go ahead and take me to a local emergency room, but he did trust our local pediatrician. So we drove the 40 miles in on a Saturday, and the pediatrician came in by himself, no staff, and and put in two simple little stitches. And at that point, that was when I decided that I was going to go on and, and be a physician. Why? Because, A, there was somebody that my father trusted, and, two, this gentleman happened to believe enough that he would come in on a weekend and go ahead and put to sutures in my arm. Well, so how does this get addressed at a hospital? Again, this is not my idea. This is uh, somebody else that I know. He decided that to help morale, either in nursing or in any other department, they were going to put a tree um, down on a wall, just a drawing of a tree, and have employees put leaves on the tree. And the leaves were meant for you to write your story on why you were either a nurse or why you were involved in medicine. And it was amazing to see from one day a, what you would say, a naked tree with no leaves on it, within four days had greater than 300 leaves on that tree, one including mine. And it's definitely reassuring to know that after you go read 200 of those, 
and you realize that people do have individual stories that have driven him to get involved in this line of work, and it invigorates you to go back to do what you do and have fun while you're doing it, because you're all really, truly doing it together. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is the treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday, it's April 24th, and you're listening to the 322nd edition of Talk Down Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD Monitor, inviting you to register now for a webcast on Spinal Fusion. It's tomorrow, April 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Spinal Fusion is one of the more frequently performed inpatient procedures. Because this procedure is frequent and problem-prone, it is also a target of payer auditors. It's important for coders to adopt a process for coding spinal fusions, as demonstrated in this exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast, led by senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson. Complicating the issue is that many coders struggle with the anatomy as well as whether to code associated procedures. Tomorrow's webcast is a long-awaited educational solution to this vexing problem. Register today. Click on the ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is senior healthcare consultant Glenn Kraus. Glenn is also an ICD-10 monitor contributor. Good morning, Glenn. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Yes, good morning. You know, I have written extensively on CDI, sharing my passion, knowledge, and ideas for enhancing the value of CDI processes, advancing, uh, hopefully advancing the profession by introducing and suggesting a novel approaches to CDI that serve as a strong foundation for achieving sustainable improvement in documentation quality, also completeness and effectiveness. Uh, you know, there's an overwhelming tendency to refer to CDI as clinical documentation integrity. But this beckons the question as to what is the real meaning of integrity and how do you define integrity? In my relatively new role as CDI manager, I've come to realize and have demonstrated what I'm finding makes the uh, makes the most success in transforming CDI into a real driving force in realizing effective and complete communication of patient care. The message that works for our team is a reference to communication of patient care as opposed to documentation improvement. Our initial focus of chart review is right now is is on H, is on the H&P from a severity of illness and need for hospital-level care perspective. We ask ourselves whether the record truly tells the patient's story from the start. Do we have a good picture of what the, brought the patient to the ER? Does the history and uh, uh, does the HPI speak to the present illness, or just do we have a, uh, a long uh, information about the past illness? This is crucial for establishment of medical necessity for hospital level of care. What is the true severity of the patient's signs and symptoms? Are there at least four elements of a history of present illness? While we are not in the business of UR or case management, we review, we view CDI as supportive of the role of case management, UMUR. The H&P serves as a segue to admission, almost like Monopoly game where you pass, go, and collect $200. If we don't achieve an accurate depiction of the patient's clinical picture reflected of the acuity, severity of illness, correlating with the plan and intensity of service, then all the queries in the world have little value and meaning. And I'm really uh, adamant about that. 
as we have risk, we have a strong risk of not reimbursed, being reimbursed for the quality, focused, patient-centered, outcomes-based, cost-effective care. See, our team views ourselves as an extension of the case management department, working in collaboration with case managers and the UR staff to ensure we start off on the right track with a solid H&P. As our department transitions to working on the floor, reviewing charts on the floor during high times of physician traffic, we will be able to to work uh, uh, closely, more closely with the case managers and physicians, intending to engage physicians and residents alike in the quick discussion on capture of patient acuity, beginning with the chief complaint in history of present illness. To me, this is a real this is real physician and documentation integrity, calling physicians to align their clinical judgment and medical decision making in the assessment and plan of care through inclusion of differential diagnosis in the assessment that that most importantly can be traced back and aligned with the HPI, diagnostic workup thus far and recorded results of the physical exam. We have a long way to go in our journey of CDI. We are just beginning. And I have a great article that's published today. I encourage you to at least take a few moments to read it. Back to you, Erica. That's really interesting, Glenn. Thanks. When I sub- just submitted my name for being um, on the ACTUS Advisory Board, they asked what one topic we thought was going to be important in CDI in the future, and I actually picked two, and one of them was the junction of CDI and medical necessity, which is what you were talking about with the whole H&P, um, and the other was uh, copy and paste. As some of you know, I, I'm waging war on copy and paste. So anyway, thanks, Glenn. That was Glenn Krause. Glenn is a CDI manager at University Health Systems in Las Vegas. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Glenn, thanks very much. You can read Glenn's excellent article on CDI in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Mental and behavioral health disorders are in the nation's spotlight with recent events, and the coding of these disorders can sometimes be tricky, as Rhonda Buckholz reports. Good morning, Rhonda. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So it was really interesting when I was at the AAPC conference just a little over a week ago. um, Some of the sessions were that were designed around these coding disorders, and even during the implementation of ICD-10, the lack of clarity and, and good understanding, because even when you compound coding for mental and behavioral disorders with DSM-5, there's still a lot of gray areas that are out there. Um, there's a lot of stigmas out in the marketplace on mental and behavioral disorders, um, both from the general population, but also from those of us working directly in the healthcare uh, arena as well. Many providers are very hesitant to label someone as dependent on uh, opioids or other uh, harmful substances. And so they're very cautious because there's not clear guidelines on when to assign those codes for dependence and sometimes not really clear code options for the intent. Um, So it's really interesting when you delve into those types of things. And when we talk about mental um, and behavioral disorders, we're talking about a, a wide variety of problems. Um, It can range anywhere from anxiety disorders, personality disorders, bipolar, depression, um, as well as dependencies on on drugs. And what's really interesting to me is that when you drive down into the the statistics, um, mental disorders, according to the Medicare um, Expenditure Panel Survey, which is MEPS, um, it contributes to over 65 million physician visits each year and over 5 million in emergency department visits. Now, and that's when it's listed as a primary diagnosis. 
So as you can see, um, in order for us to be able to get good data, in order for us to be able to really ascertain, we need the healthcare industry to be able to use the codes to the highest level of specificity as possible, um, especially when you're talking about close to 70 million encounters um, when that's the primary reason for being, being treated. Um, it's very hard to um, uh, work with the providers and make sure that they uh, assign those types of things because of the stigma that's attached and, and honestly because of some of the legal ramifications too. Um, so I'll give you a good example. My, my husband's um, an EMT with the fire department. And so um, unfortunately he learned early on that unless someone was visibly intoxicated and it was determined by um, a, a law official that was there that they were, um, they, they would fail to mention it in their reports because of the legalities that went along with it, um, the court dates and, and everything that kind of went along with those types of things, especially if it wasn't proven that the person actually was intoxicated um, or on, on a, a drug or, or that type of thing. Um, it happens a lot out in, in the industry. And so one nice thing is with the HIPAA regulations, um, OCR just gave a, a little bit of guidance in, in light of the shootings and other instances that we've had out in the marketplace that says, hey, let's use some common sense here. You can actually report someone and share information with caregivers and, and others if someone's at a significant risk of harm. Um, which, so it's staying on top of those issues um, and looking at ways that we can improve um, and really start to take a look at, um, at those issues as they go by. Jackie Kiprios, which uh, many of you guys might know as the AAPC's National Advisory President, she was outgoing um, this year, um, uh, said the opioid e epidemic has affected both the business side of medicine and the clinical. And so for patients to actually be able to receive the help that they desperately need, the first step is awareness to the issues. Um, then we've got to get the new diagnosis codes to accurately identify the situation and start to remove the stigma of the diagnosis so that the provider doesn't seem to be um, kind of held hostage to, uh, to the ramifications of, of actually labeling those um, diagnosis codes as well. Um, I think we have a long way to go in, in the healthcare industry to removing that stigma, and, and hopefully this is just the first step in, in bringing that awareness. Thanks, Rhonda. You know, I think it's also um, tricky sometimes because patients present to the provider um, being treated for a previously diagnosed um, condition, and it's often hard for the provider to determine the specificity of the diagnosis. So, for instance, a patient that comes in and they're taking, you know, Lexapro for depression, you don't really know what the details of the depression are, so it's really hard to dial it down. Thanks, Rhonda. That was Rhonda Buckholtz. Rhonda is the Chief Compliance Officer for uh, Century Vision. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Rhonda, thanks very much. Uh, Rhonda has an excellent article on the subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Thanks again, Rhonda. It's auditing season, and nationally recognized coding and documentation authority Terry Fletcher is with us to report on errors that she is uncovering in a review of more than 1,000 records. Whoa, that's a lot of records, and most likely, Terry, a lot of errors, right? Yeah, actually, the audits I've been conducting lately have been filled with both the good and the not-so-good, as I like to call it, even the records that have errors. 
Uh, these can be used as training tools to educate providers in, in their deficiencies on their documentation. Um, but the ENM services are amongst the most used in the CPT codebook, so they're scrutinized with Medicare and commercial payers routinely. Physician practices with documentation concerns are contacting me daily to redo not review not only their E&M and CDI policies so that they are secure in their practices to avoid documentation issues, but they're concerned about the negative payer audits as well. In this last uh, past month alone, I've audited over 1,000 records. I'm still in the process. I've got, got 2,000 more looking at me in the face uh, this morning. And I felt it was important to have a discussion on some of the specific issues auditors are facing when reviewing a note. Uh, these are consistent across the board, these issues, with most physicians and mid-level providers, regardless of specialty. So hopefully uh, our listeners today will appreciate some of the information that we give them to understand what it takes to pass a payer audit. First, I found that there's an increased risk in coding errors with E&M, especially with EMRs, the electronic medical record systems, as they tend to give records the appearance of being complete due to the ability to click and paste and enter uh, HPI elements, organ system and or exam components, or bring them forward when it's clear they may not have actually been performed as part of the exam. So the record becomes suspect when the patient presents for, let's say, an ankle injury, and now the exam system reviewed shows that it's pulmonary, and that may not be medically indicated. Or, for example, I see a lot of marking WNL within normal limits on an exam sheet, but then going back to the review of systems or the chief complaint, and I realize that it should have been a positive entry because that is the effective area or the reason for the actual encounter on that date. And now it makes the, this for a conflicting record, and that's the issue that I run up against a lot. Some auditors won't stop there. They'll negate the record at that point and say it's not valid and ask for money back. And when that happens, that can expose the practice to an expanded audit or spotlight other areas of concern in the documentation. A recent example uh, I had was a patient was presented with chest pain and shortness of breath, but the cardiovascular exam system entry entered or stated no chest pain or dyspnea. I went back to the patient's review of system form, and the patient actually filled out, yes, uh, chest pain on occasion, but again, the exam was negative for these symptoms and no explanation. So not only was that a red flag to me, but then I started to look for other inconsistencies within the record, and the trust that the documentation was accurate was gone. In addition, when during, when during an audit, different typesetting or fonts within the EMR or misspelling of words, and I see a lot of that, meaning the standard or generic electronic font is changed, and then the actual free type of the physician is added. It can look like what was actually performed was only what the physician free typed into the record. It's not to say that free type information isn't welcome from the physician, but it needs to be consistent with the elements and the, the EMR template so that the type looks very similar or at least the same. Also, to have numerous misspelled words and bad grammar in the medical record can be considered reckless and lead not only to inaccurate records, but also give the impression to the auditor that the practice does not pay attention to detail. So unfortunately, even with proactive uh, CDI departments correcting uh, documentation behaviors and regular internal and external audits performed, it's an ongoing process. Um, we, we are aware and we empathize with the provider's busy schedule, treating patients with their ever-increasing volumes. However, in my auditing processes, I do notice that they start to forget their documentation training and their good behaviors that they learned uh, over time, and what happens is that for the first three to six months in training sessions, they're great, and then the decline in accurate documentation starts to show, and many records start to feel like they were rushed through. So I highly recommend practice to self-audit first internally before they go to an external audit and kind of identify the, the problem first with qualified staff. Not only that, once you're formally audited by a payer, 
you now possibly could have a target on your back, and they may continue to watch your coding and billing habits for a long time. All it takes is 20 to 30 encounters found to have been, to have been coded one higher level than they should have been, uh, or an ICD-10 code reported that was not found in the narrative documentation, and a payer can ask for their money back as well as fees, interest, and penalties. They can also expand the audit, and the expense to the practice just climbs from there. Um, as a professional auditor, I've known several physician practices recently where this scenario has happened. So I've done a couple recent Medicare audits, as I've done that for about 15 years, and one in particular requested back 155000 in monies paid on a retrospective audit. But guess what? The actual amount paid back to the payer after fees, interest, and penalties ended up being over a million dollars. The practice was also put on notice that they would be audited every six months to make sure that their documentation had improved and they enlisted some kind of education. So, And also, please don't assume that you're untouchable for an audit. What triggers an audit, if you are traditionally reporting level fours and five services, that can be something that can trigger it. Or if you're a flatline coding physician, meaning you only know one level of service, it's not a matter of if you get audited, it's when. So as we dive more into this topic of auditing pitfalls in this four-part series, I will try to clarify how to document appropriately to give you that confidence to pass an audit. ICD-10 also may impact an auditor's decision in your physician training, and so we'll touch on that as we move forward in some of these processes. So it's really imperative to understand the auditing process so that there's no surprises. And we look forward to continuing the series on the pitfalls of E&M coding. And in the words of Dr. Reamer, be an author, not an editor, and that in your documentation processes, and that will hopefully just give you some insight there. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Thank you, Terry. Um, and I'm going to actually stick in one of my two cents here. Um, I do believe that there is a um, place for having a different font, and I think that if an attending is doing what I affectionately call leaving an attending dropping on a residence chart, I think it's a really good practice for them to use a different font so they can demonstrate that they've actually added and um, expanded on the residence documentation and sort of made it their own. Um, and I also wanted to comment that if you have incorrect spelling and then you copy and paste it, then it gets propagated and then it's like screaming, hello, this was copy and pasted. So that's my two cents. So thank you very much, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. Thanks for your two cents. And Terry, thanks very much. Terry is writing a four-part series on auditing issues in physician documentation, and you can read part one on icd10monitor.com. And by the way, a program note, you can listen to today's broadcast on demand anywhere, anytime, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Tuned In, and of course, Google. We have an awful lot of news to report this morning. We had a report on coding mental and behavioral health issues with Rhonda Buckles. Glenn Cross reported on taking a holistic approach to CDI. And you just heard Terry Fletcher report on auditing issues she's uncovering and reviewing physician documentation here now with her very popular segment called Talkback is our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Last week, Dr. Larry Field shared with us the story of a newbie hospitalist who was unhappy and asking about transitioning to being a physician advisor after only three years of clinical practice. When we were having our pre-show warm-up, his story triggered some thoughts for me. I think providers think documentation requirements are aftermarket additions to medical practice because no one explains in training what the factory installation documentation requirements are. We get very limited training in documentation and residency, almost exclusively aimed at medical legal aspects, 
but that doesn't mean that medicine doesn't have very specific documentation requirements like Terry was talking about. These requirements aren't secret. It's just that without training, doctors wing it, hoping they are meeting the government's requisites. We posted an article on ICD-10 Monitor today which details my thoughts, and here is the essence. First, the current teachers of documentation started their careers documenting in a paper world, and the electronic environment is particularly irksome to them. They are trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, which is why they instruct trainees to embed data and copy and paste extraneous material into the record. Somewhere along the line, someone trained this provider that to bill at the highest levels, you need to have a lot of documentation. At the risk of sounding crass, it's not the size that counts. One of the messages we impart to providers taking my medical documentation course through Case Western um, Reserve School of Medicine is that it is imperative that they familiarize themselves with the CMS Evaluation Management Services Guidelines. Let's set aside the sentence that makes the false claim that if it isn't documented, it has not been done, and focus on clear and concise medical record documentation is critical to providing patients with quality care that pertinent facts, findings, and observations about the patient's health history should be recorded and that healthcare payers may require reasonable documentation to validate that there was medical necessity and appropriateness of care, and the services reported were furnished. As I consult, one of the biggest misconceptions I run into is providers telling me that the more they document, the higher they can bill. The E&M guidelines clearly state you should not use the volume of documentation to determine which specific level of service to bill. Another misconception is that documentation is just an added burden by the government or payers and that it would be better to just be left alone. Documentation is ubiquitous. When I talk to a customer service agent, I welcome a transcript of our discussion. When you have a meeting, someone takes and disseminates minutes. If I have a business call, one of the parties usually sends an email recapping what we discussed and what everyone's to-dos are. Documentation makes sure everyone is on the same page. It is an important tool to make sure we are providing excellent patient care. I do think the electronic medical record has thrown a monkey wrench into the doctor-patient relationship. We are meant to be gazing into our patient's eyes, not down at a keyboard. I hope Dr. Field suggests to his unhappy charge to consider using a scribe. Unless we have a digital apocalypse, the EMR isn't going away, and healthcare providers are going to need to learn how to live with it. I hope they do because it would be a travesty for excellent doctors to leave medicine because they can't take the documentation requirements. And he wouldn't escape it anyway. It's a good physician advisor's job to advocate for excellent documentation. Chuck, on my birthday, I would like to say a little shout-out to my good friend Kathy Merchland and turn it back over to you. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Erica, very much. And, Erica, before you uh, say goodbye, I just wanted to uh, remind you, we got a question from Martha here, and I think that this comes about from Terry's segment. You want to, take a, uh, you want to try to answer Martha's question? Uh, sure, and we can see if Terry wants to chime in. Let me just read it. How do I help a provider correct 
documentation when he sticks to bad habits. He would rather select review systems that's negative and make a footnote of positive review systems which causes a conflict. He will not take the time to clean up the EMR. So um, I'm going to say that, number one, I think that bringing this um, process to his attention and then possibly to his whoever is his um, supervisor's attention uh, may um, be helpful. I do think that it's really important. One of the things that um, Terry was talking about was internal inconsistency, and it can be really a big problem because if you say that the patient is um, alert and oriented in your physical examination, but when you, you do your review systems, you say that they're lethargic and, you know, they're complaining of the, the family's complaining of lethargy and so on, it sets up an internal conflict, um, and that's really bad documentation practice, and it's bad medical, clinical practice. Um, I think that if the review systems is positive, he should be picking out the pieces and parts. I'm presuming you have an EMR. It says that you have an EMR. So he should be taking the time to, um, to mindfully edit the review systems and pick out the parts that are um, positive. You want to have your pertinent positives and your pertinent negatives. So, Terry, did you have a, a comment you would like to make on this on how you might approach uh, a provider if they're doing something bad like this? Well, what I try to do first is always highlight the positives. So I would bring three records to the provider, sit them down and say, okay, this is what I really like about your documentation, but we have some deficiencies in the review systems, and I know you're struggling with that as far as wanting to only put down negative, which doesn't always count, and then just do a footnote for positive. So let me show you the three records and how you're documenting it, and if you could actually modify it this way, how it possibly could affect your, your coding. And so I give them the positives first and then show them how it could go up or down based on what I need them to do, and sometimes the positive reinforcement seems to help. And, Chuck, you know, and I know that you're going to want to close this up, but Sherry just asked, when there is conflict in the documentation, shouldn't the process be that the coder should query the provider? And I think that that's certainly something that sometimes needs to be done, um, but I don't think that every time that there is, like, if, if they clicked on the box that said review systems negative and then the, in the footnotes they said review systems is positive for X, Y, and Z, um, I'm not sure that it sets up a conflict to the point where a coder needs to query for it. I think it's just bad practice and it looks bad. Um, I think that if your footnote is, you know, to me, if I were looking at that as a provider, I would think that that would be overriding the standard PAT negative. Very good. Thanks, uh, Erica. And again, happy birthday. And Terry, thanks for uh, helping us with that uh, Q&A this morning. That is going to be a wrap for this edition. This is our 322nd edition of Talk Dead Tuesday. And Erica, I want to thank our guest today, Rhonda Buckles, Dr. Larry Field, Glenn Cross, and of course, uh, Terry Fletcher. Hope you're going to be right back here again next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor. <laughs>